Well, I listened to your guys' lesson last week on uh, Mark chapter 13, and that was a doozy. Who wants to recap that for us? Anybody? <laughs> no? I was here a few weeks ago, and we did an activity, if you all remember. Who remembers any single word of Hebrew that we, that we covered? I saw Creighton start to raise his hand. No, I thought you were just going to say, did you remember what we did? Okay, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of guttural sounds. Yeah, that was good. I'm not going to quiz you on that today. But we are continuing in Mark, and today we're going to be looking at two responses to Jesus, specifically from two individuals. And what we're going to notice here is the stark contrast in the outward behavior of these individuals based on their positional relationship with Jesus Christ. So you can see the title for my lesson, because I like to be a little provocative now and then and, you know, attention-grabbing, is What is Your Personal Preposition? That might not make any sense right now, but hopefully it will by the time we are done. So to, to kick us off, let's go ahead and stand as we do for the, for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in Mark 14, and we're going to be reading from uh, verse 1 to verse 11. Now, full disclosure, I'm not reading from the ESV today, and my scripture on screen is not the ESV. I'm pretty sure it's still the Word of God, so we should be okay. But let's read together. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus and secretly kill him. But not during Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. While he was reclined at table, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Now some at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Go ahead and take a seat, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, what we've been learning through the Gospel of Mark, how we've encountered the man of Jesus Christ, the God-man, and how people respond to him. So I pray that this morning as we uh, dig through your word, we can understand more about you, more about Jesus, and what it means uh, for us. So I pray that this time be glorifying to you and edifying to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the plan this morning, like normal, we're going to walk through the text. We're kind of go section by section and parse out what is actually happening. We'll point out some contextual things that's going on and get some nuggets out of that. And then towards the end, we'll move from, you know, what does the text mean, which is of primary importance, to then how does this text speak to my life, to, to our lives. So what we're going to do, because alliteration makes for a great lesson, we're going to look at the plot the party and the pariah. So we'll start in the plot uh, to get some background. So the passage started out, as we read, that it was now two days before Passover and the festival or the feast of unleavened bread. And the priests, the religious leaders, were looking for a way to now secretly arrest and kill Jesus. So we're really getting down to business here with these religious leaders. It's been clear throughout Mark that they want Jesus 
out of the picture. They'd gone through various lengths to try to make this happen a little more legitimately. That's what those Jesus trap questions were about, trying to get him to maybe say something outright blasphemous or do something to make the Romans upset with him so that he could be dealt with and the religious leaders could kind of, you know, be innocent in the whole thing, have clean hands um, still. Now they're getting to the end of their rope. They're pretty sick of it, and they're like, okay, we just need to take care of this guy. So we're going to secretly get this done and kill him. So in terms of our timeline, we're getting very close to the end of Jesus' Passion Week. Things are starting to get intense at this point. But as it says here, they were eager to make him disappear, but they were still a little bit hesitant because Passover was so close. So they wanted to hold off a little bit. So really quickly... Does anybody want to give a one to two sentence description of what Passover is? What is Passover commemorating? Yeah? You're very close. It's right before that. That is actually the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is celebrating the Exodus part. So you're very close. Slightly before that. Yeah? Yeah, very good. So to to expand on that a little bit and get ourselves centered. So firstly, this event in Exodus where the Passover event occurred by Jesus's day was already about 1500 years in their past. And the Jewish people had been celebrating in one way or another this Passover meal already for a crazy long time, 1500 years celebrating this every year. That's still going on. Jews today, still in one way or another, are celebrating this Passover. So that's like a 3,500-year tradition that has been going on. I don't have a real point to that other than I'm impressed. I don't know what other traditions you know of that have gone on for 3,500 years. I mean, the, the Lord's Supper, communion, is pretty close at nearly 2,000 years now. Uh, I'm hopeful that the Jewish Passover will start to die out because all the Jews are converted to Christ, you know, for the sake of their souls. But a, an added bonus would be that maybe communion can overtake the Passover, depending on when the Lord decides to return. None of that really matters here. Um, but as I said, the, the, the Passover meal, as was mentioned here, was commemorating that night in Egypt where the angel of death passed over, it's a helpful title, passed over the houses of the Israelites who had killed an innocent lamb and placed the blood on their doorposts and lintels in faith that that would protect them from the angel of death coming through. That's the Passover event kind of, but Passover, when we use that word, is more than just a meal that commemorates that. The term Passover is used to cover like a whole swath uh, of things, which also includes this feast or festival of unleavened bread, which would start the next day and itself would last a week. And as our guy here mentioned, what that feast, I assume that's what he was talking about when he answered the question, uh, that feast is commemorating the actual exodus part of it, when they, when they were able to flee from the Egyptians, and it's uh, about unleavened bread, because that's the kind of bread that they took with them when they left. There's also some symbolism about sin being the leaven, so unleavened bread was sinless, but we won't need to, to get into all of that. But that's what these festival days were about. And now, as we've said a couple of times, while they wanted Jesus dead, because of this whole Passover season, if you want to call it that, they wanted to hold off a little bit because they were concerned about a riot. And just to 
to let you know the heart of the religious leaders. It's not like they were trying to not spoil a fun holiday, you know, like how you don't fire people right before Christmas because it spoils the holiday. This was self-serving, just like everything else that the religious leaders did. They didn't want for themselves to be the cause of a big riot in this time and upset the people. During the, the Passover and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the population of Jerusalem would blow up from roughly 50,000 people to be several hundred thousand when they're coming in for, for these feast days. Are there any Mortonites in here, like Pumpkin Festival fans? Yeah, I'm from, I'm from Morton, so Pumpkin Festival is a big deal. But it's like when the Pumpkin Festival is in town, Morton kind of blows up. There's people coming in from all other uh, places nearby, some people coming from far away. Whoever my wife can convince that it's a good reason to come to Morton, come to Morton. And it's that kind of thing where, where the city's kind of bursting. It's overcrowded. Emotions might be running high. So the religious leaders in that context are trying to be a little more careful with their scheming. This would be like Pumpkin Festival week on Friday. You know, things are really ramping up. You got the run the next morning. There's going to be pumpkin pancakes and sausage. This would be someone coming in and saying, hey, you know what? Let's call the whole thing off. Uh, this guy over here decided we're not going to do it. There would be a freakout on hand, and my wife would be at the front of that charge saying, this will not stand. And that's what they're trying to avoid in this context here. Now, in God's beautiful irony, while they didn't want to arrest Jesus because specifically it was the Passover season, in God's perfect preordained timing, he would in fact be arrested this coming Thursday right after the Passover meal, and we'll see why their plans changed in a bit. But God worked and weaved this whole thing beautifully because, for us, Jesus is our Passover lamb. So, uh, beautiful working of God there. But that's all, that's all backdrop to the, the main meat of our passage today. So, we're going to shift from these religious leaders and their plot to, to how are they going to arrest and kill Jesus to now go to a little bit of a, a house party. Okay? So, Quick note also that um, this passage about the time in Bethany may not be chronologically here. Uh, you'll, you'll notice some differences in the Gospels here, but Mark is well known for putting things in different orders in terms of when they happened in time in order to make a point. Um, and this isn't a problem if something like that worries you. Linear ABC storytelling wasn't a super important thing in this first century era of writing. If events needed to be moved around a little bit to paint a storytelling picture, writers definitely felt at liberty to do that without you know, committing any violence to the text, uh, so to speak. We probably do this as well. When we're recounting a story to somebody, we might move little details here and there to make it a more uh, flowing story, and we don't feel bad about it, and it's still very much a true story. Uh, and that's the case here. But you may notice uh, how Mark placed this is that this section about the party that we're going to read is kind of sandwiched in between two sets of schemers uh, against Jesus. So Mark is probably trying to make a point and point, uh, making a contrast between the people that are against Jesus and the people that are uh, for Jesus in the middle. He did this a little bit in chapter 13 uh, as well. But why I bring this up is if you were to read the parallel accounts of this event in like Matthew or John, you'll see that John places this event, this party in Bethany, before um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem at all, so earlier in the week. And I'm telling you this because, you know, people might try to say that this is a contradiction in the Bible and this is why the Bible is not a reliable document, but that's just not accurate. Looking at first century writing, this is a very, very common thing to do. The timeline of events is not so important as what Mark is trying to communicate. 
And Western mind, minds like ours really don't like this. I don't like this, I'll be honest with you. I want to know the exact, I want the, the bow tied perfectly on the story. But for the original audience, when this was written, this is not a problem at all. wouldn't concern anybody. So just wanted to point that out for you. But our passage uh, continues here. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured it over his head. So a little context here. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem, so not too far away. And that's where Jesus spent his nights during his Passion Week. Uh, He spent his nights where he slept was at the house of Lazarus, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. But here, he's uh, somewhere else. He's at this home of a man named Simon the leper. We don't know a lot about Simon, except that he apparently had leprosy, and it was more than likely cured by Jesus. If he still had leprosy, he's not hosting parties, or if he did, nobody would show up. He would not be a popular Super Bowl party destination. So it's pretty safe to assume that he has been healed of this leprosy, and that's not a thing that you generally just take some amoxicillin and get better from. This would likely be a healing by Um, Jesus. Now, given that, who we've got at this party, and if we're thinking about Super Bowl parties tonight, I personally get a little bit uncomfortable in situations with a big group of people. I'm not great at small talk. It's hard for me to start a conversation with somebody because I don't know the question to ask. Think about this party, though, okay? The host, who we've just been introduced to, apparently had leprosy long enough that it became his nickname, right? And now he no longer has leprosy. So that's an easy conversation starter, right? Hey, Simon, I notice you don't have those disgusting boils all over your body anymore. What's, what's the story there, right? Or um, in the other corner, you've got Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, the guy who was, you know, dead for four days, right? And then Jesus brought him back to life. Not, he wasn't dead long enough to get a nickname, so he's not Lazarus the dead. Um, but the party girl was sure knew who he was, right? So another icebreaker, dead for four days. What's that like, <laughs> right? <laughs> And that's, that's a genuine question that I have for Lazarus if I stumble upon him in the afterlife. So we've got those two. And then we've got Jesus there, the guy who performed these miracles right there in the room. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that party. And rest assured, there were flies on the wall uh, at that party. But anyway, in the middle of this scenario, this little dinner party that's going on, an unnamed woman, at least in Mark's gospel, shows up and just dumps the contents of a large alabaster jar of perfume right on Jesus' head. To us, that sounds very weird. For them, it was a little bit weird. This is a record scratch moment of the party. They're chatting around the table, and she comes in and just dumps oil on his head. I imagine she got some looks from that, right? For a few reasons. Number one, women were generally not allowed in the dining room uh, when men were, were eating like that unless they were serving. So it's even more strange that this happened, especially since Mark left the, na- the woman unnamed. We do find out who it was in John's gospel that this was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So that makes a little bit more sense that she's very familiar to them. So maybe she was serving, but either way, she, she took a break from whatever she was doing to come in and dump perfume on Jesus's head. So still a very shocking thing to, to have happened. Now, beyond the initial strangeness of just that taking place, there is a bit more significance to this perfume that she poured on. Uh, The passage mentioned that it was an alabaster jar of um, very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Okay, I know that doesn't sound great, nard. 
Like if you're getting a Valentine's Day gift for your girl, saying I got you some nard, doesn't sound great. Um, but this was top of the line stuff. Uh, the jar was probably very nice also, but the stuff in there was very valuable. Uh, the passage says it's pure nard or essence of nard, depending on your translation. But this is high quality stuff. This isn't knockoff stuff that still smells kind of nice. This was an aromatic oil that was extracted from a particular root in India. So it's imported perfume, and it often served as the base for lots of other perfumes. And the passage later notes that the perfume, I think I had it on, I don't know where it is. Um, But it mentioned that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, does anybody remember what that denomination of money is, a denarius? Anybody remember what one denarius is worth? Yeah, one day's wage is what a denarius is. So 300 denarii, if that's basically a full year's salary if you take out Sabbath days where they're not working or other feast days. That's a full year's worth of salary. That's a lot of money. To, to contextualize it here, I'm from Tazewell County. I don't even remember if Mackinac's in Tazewell County or not. But the, the median income in Tazewell County is like $63,000. Does anyone here, other than some of the adults own anything that's worth $63,000? Yeah, I wouldn't admit that out loud either. Um, but, but for the adults, like a house is usually worth more than that, um, quite a bit more than that. But very few people own something that they can hold in their hand that is the value of a full year's wage. Um, even most people's car that they purchase is something like half of that. Now, there are cars that cost quite a bit more than that, like a new church bus, Um, (laughs) But generally, we don't own things that are that expensive. So to own something and hold it in your hand that's worth a full year's of wage, that's a pretty rare thing even now. So think of that in this this event. She just dumped something on Jesus' head, uh, enough to get his whole body wet, by the way. We know in John's account that it also went to his feet, and then she washed his feet with her hair. She just dumped 60 grand worth of stuff onto Jesus' head. Now, to give a little more context to what she was doing there, the $60,000 for a laborer, that would be like a full year's wage, and you'd be a a good laborer to to get that. But for someone like Mary to have something of this value, she's not making that kind of money in the marketplace. So if it was just hers, this would have been years and years and years worth of money that she had there. What's more likely is is that it was a family heirloom. This would have been something very precious to her household, maybe for generations, that's being kept for some kind of important occasion, or maybe it was a nest egg for for a rainy day. We don't know. We don't know exactly why she had this perfume, but for her to dump it all out on Jesus, not just use the little, what's that called, a tincture thingy? She's not dosing this out on Jesus. She's dumping it all out on him. What that shows is what Mary thinks of Jesus and what his worth is. So whatever she had this perfume for, whatever she was planning to use it for, Jesus was now much more important to her than even that. But we'll get to that in a little bit. But this event happened. She dumps it on his head. It's a big deal. It was a surprise to everybody. But Mary didn't get like a round of applause for this great act of devotion that she did. The people at the dinner were not impressed, to say the least. It says in verses 4 and 5, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So this isn't when someone comes in, like with your soda, and accidentally spills it, and you're like, oh, really wanted that soda. 
like you're a little bit bummed out. This is really, it may not translate to English because it's not even up there, but this is really strong language that is being used uh, in the Greek here. They were flipping out on Mary for doing this. Indignant, being indignant, that's being like hot with anger. Um, We might say that they were super ticked or they were livid or, or something. What kind of language we would use, I don't know. But they were mad and they let her know about it, right? It says they scolded her harshly. When you think of scolding someone, that's like to really lay into them well beyond what is necessary, often for a mistake, a minor infraction, is to really beat somebody down to the point of like humiliation. Uh, You sometimes picture a child being really scolded by a parent and you can see them start to look at the floor and their shoulders are wincing when they're being yelled at. This is making a scene of laying into to Mary, and they were laying into her because they think that she just wasted this perfume, this ointment, that she was being wasteful because so many better things could have been done here. Matthew's account in his gospel tells us that it was some of the disciples who were acting this way, so people who had spent quite a bit of time with Jesus. But John's gospel really singles out Judas, who we'll get to later, singles out Judas as having this attitude and harsh response towards um, Mary. And we'll circle back to that. Now, to be somewhat fair uh, to these guys, this would have been a surprise, a a shock to the system. And your immediate response may have been, wow, that was a whole bunch of money that's going down the drain, right? Their thought, at least what they expressed out loud, was that the value of that perfume could have been better used to serve the poor, for example, which was a common thing to do around the Passover season. Now, just a quick comment on this. Mary was under no obligation to give that ointment to anybody. She was under no obligation to sell it and give it to the poor. She was free to do with it whatever she wanted. Um, I find it interesting that their sentiment, maybe I'm reading into it, but their sentiment is one that you find very much today, where people are always very eager and have really great ideas of how to be generous with other people's stuff. (laughs) And that's what I'm seeing uh, happen here. Um, But again, they're laying into her really ripping into Mary here, but then Jesus chimes in, and he has a much different perspective on Mary's actions than the disciples. Jesus steps in, starting in verse 6, saying, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? So he tells those who are rebuking Mary to back off, leave her alone, because he sees what Mary has done as a beautiful thing, quite a bit different than what they saw, And Jesus, being Jesus, understands the multi-layered nature of Mary's actions, which Mary may or may not have even understood herself. But Jesus continues, you will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you'll not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. So Jesus sees here the timeliness of this event and the whole redemptive historical context to Mary's actions of what's coming up for him, which he had been trying to tell the disciples about for a long time that they still weren't getting. But he says, there will always be poor with you that you can help, which would be an interesting concept to dive into another time. But he's saying, I'm not going to be here physically for very much longer. Let that sink in, fellas. I know it's been difficult, but he's reminding them of this. Uh, His work on earth was nearly over and coming to an end, and Mary's actions She was doing what she could in that redemptive historical context. He was on his way to the cross, remember? And he was on his way after that to a tomb. And he sees Mary as preparing his body, anointing his body for burial. 
Now, I highly doubt that Mary really even understood why she was doing this when she did it, but that's what Jesus saw. To Mary, Jesus did represent many things. He was a family friend. He was a teacher. She would surely absorb uh, all of his teaching over the days. Um, When her brother Lazarus died, it was Jesus who came and restored him back to life and restored her family. Mary clearly was a very faithful woman, and she believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He was the Messiah, the anointed one, and so she anointed him, not unlike the anointings we see of kings and priests in the Old Covenant. So that's what Jesus meant to Mary. So Mary's response to this was she took what she could. She took the the best thing that she had and gave it to Jesus. She didn't hold it back, and Jesus called that a beautiful thing. Once the jar was broken, that was it. It was all given to Jesus Christ. No half measures there, and she didn't hesitate. She gave the best of what she had to Jesus out of her love for him. It didn't matter to her what the perfume cost. She felt compared to pour it out on Jesus because he was worth more to her than even her most prized possession. And Jesus even mentions that when the good news or when the gospel is told around the world, what Mary did would also be told. And sure enough, here we are, about 2,000 years later, still talking about it. Mary's gift, not necessarily because of the value of it, but her actions and her sacrifice, was a beautiful thing. But not everybody felt that way, right? You would hope that most of the people who were in that room who were berating Mary were a little bit embarrassed at this point after Jesus chimed in, probably felt a little sheepish, were doing this little thing, looking down, saying, sorry, Mary, right? Hopefully apologizing. We don't know how they all responded, but we do know how one of them responded. And verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. Now we read this today and think, yep, that's wicked old Judas for you, right? The guy who single-handedly ruined a pretty decent name for the rest of time, right? Nobody's naming their kids Judas anymore. It's up there with Jezebel. Beautiful name, but you don't see a lot of Jezebels. And Adolf, right? Those, those three are kind of off-limits now. But if we step back for a second and imagine that we have zero knowledge of anything else that has happened in Jesus' life other than what we've read so far in Mark up to these 13 and a half chapters, this is a pretty major plot twist that's happening here. The first time you read this, you'd be like, what? You're telling me that one of Jesus' closest friends of these 12 that have been following, around, following him around for three years or whatever, spending day or night with him, witnessing his miracles, sitting under his teaching, one of those guys is going to betray him to his death? That's nuts, right? This would be where the audience in the movie theater audibly gasps at this plot twist. To not, you know, to be careful with the statute of limitations on spoilers, this would be like the first people seeing the first Star Wars movie whichever Star Wars movie it's in, I'm sorry for my knowledge here, when they first find out that Darth Vader is Luke's father, right? (laughs) Mind-blow situation. That's what's happening here. I mean, Judas isn't a well-known character. We haven't learned anything about Judas up to this point. He was named earlier in Mark's Gospel just as part of the list of the Twelve. We don't really know that he's some devious guy at this point. We We didn't have any clues, and the disciples didn't have any clues that this was coming. This disciple, Judas, was one of Jesus' closest companions who's now going to betray him to those who are seeking to have him killed. This is big-time stuff. Now, this passage doesn't give us a direct reason why Judas betrayed Jesus, but we can start to piece some of these puzzle pieces together. 
Uh, our verse concludes with ver- or our passage concludes with verse eleven that they, being the religious leaders, were delighted when they heard why he had come to them, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for a way to betray Jesus. So the religious leaders were obviously pretty pumped here to hear about uh, the betrayal, and they were willing to give Judas money for his intel in exchange for his help. So when you connect this verse to what we previously saw with the anointing scene, you can really start to see this Mary-Judas contrast or juxtaposition that's being put in front of us by Mark. To Mary, Jesus was everything and was worth anything. To Judas, Jesus was a means to enrich himself. Uh, John's gospel tells us that Judas was a thief, and he was also the one in charge of the group's money. So whatever was collected as gifts to Jesus in the ministry, Judas was the one in charge of that. He was likely skimming something off the top and taking it for himself. So he followed Jesus for the side benefits, in this case being money. So let's say he's taken 5% off of whatever was coming in. He's pocketing 5%. Not enough to catch anyone's eye, right? Well, when he saw $63,000 worth of nard dumped on the floor, I imagine his heart sank, right? That would have been a big payday for Judas. Had they sold it and distributed that to the poor, Judas would have been sitting pretty. Um, Let's, let's go with the 5% number I made up. That'd be something like 3000 bucks that would have gone in his pocket. But she wasted it, and then Jesus praised her for it, right? For a guy like Judas, that's got to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So to Judas, Jesus didn't represent salvation. He wasn't God in the flesh. He was a means to an end, and the end was money. And when that wasn't cutting it anymore, he was willing to literally trade Jesus for a bag of silver, a bag of money which Matthew's gospel says was 30 pieces of silver, so just a fraction of what that perfume would have been worth. So now if we look back at the passage, we see these events here. What we've been presented with is three different kinds of people, and more alliteration for you here this time with Fs. We see foes, we see friends, and we see false friends. The foes are those who just outright despise Jesus, right? In this case, the religious leaders. Jesus was an open threat to their power and their livelihoods. They are not hiding the fact that they are against Jesus. Then to skip to the the false friends, we have Judas, who was happy to associate with Jesus so long as it was convenient for him. In his case, convenient for his bank account. And then you have in the middle, Mary, his real friend, Mary truly saw Jesus for who he really was. He, was. he was a friend, yes, a teacher too. He's the guy who restored their family, but ultimately and most importantly, she recognized Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah. Each of these three kinds of people more than likely will eventually reveal themselves for who they really are inwardly by their outward actions, and that's what we saw here. It's our faith or our unbelief of course, that finally determines our eternal destinies. It's based on faith alone or the lack thereof. But our inward beliefs, that inward belief or unbelief, will manifest itself in our outward actions. For the foes, the religious leaders, their their fear, their self-righteousness, and their desire for power led them to outwardly hate and dislike Jesus and ultimately seek his death. Pretty radical stuff there. Judas's selfishness and his love of money led him to betray Jesus in order to get what he could get from him to serve himself. And Mary's true belief and true faith and trust of Jesus led her to, in Jesus' words, do what she could 
do whatever she could to demonstrate what Jesus meant to her. As we start to, to, to wind down a little bit and maybe finally make sense of that personal preposition thing that I said, I wanted to take like a minute or two just to talk about the concept of apostasy. Is that a word you guys are familiar with? Apostasy? Anybody know what apostasy means? No? Okay. The basic idea of apostasy, apostasy is an outward renunciation of a belief of some kind. So in the, in the context of Christianity, that would be that you were a believer at some point and then you outwardly now are leaving the faith, leaving the faith and denouncing it. The key warning passages that we see about apostasy are in Hebrews, and it's admittedly a difficult section uh, when you consider the idea of someone leaving the faith potentially losing their salvation, but when you put that with other scripture that says that we cannot ultimately lose our salvation, we hear from John that anybody that leaves the faith leave because they were never truly of the faith. It's complicated stuff, but part of what Hebrews talks about is the people that do go apostate is that they have you know, tasted the heavenly gifts, so to speak, and then falling away from it. There's no way we can dig into that now, and I'm not volunteering to do so, but I think when we picture Judas as like the ultimate apostate, someone who was with Jesus so visibly and so long, then leaving and betraying him. That's the ultimate apostasy. We can maybe get an idea of what it means to have tasted the heavenly gifts, but then still fall away. Judas was living with Christ. He was sitting under his teaching. He was seeing his miracles. He was sharing meals with him. He was partaking of those things. He was clearly connected or associated with Christ in some way, but it's clear by the end that he was never united to Christ by saving faith. So in thinking about how we apply what we've learned today to our own lives, I think an, imp- an appropriate question to ask yourself, which only you can answer, is what is your personal preposition in relation to Christ? Are you by Christ or are you in Christ? prepositions matter in this case. Or maybe to add a few more words to get the picture, it's not as short and catchy, but are you simply associated with Christ by your proximity to him? Or are you united to Christ by faith? Are you simply associated with Christ by the fact that you're here in this room? Or are you united to Christ by faith? Just for for your clarity, me, some of the other leaders from the outside looking at you, we might not be able to tell the difference, if we're being honest here. The disciples had no idea that Judas was wearing this mask. But even if Judas didn't outwardly betray Jesus like he did, and he continued living as he did in his unbelief, he would have died in that unbelief and ultimately perished. His proximity to Christ would have given him absolutely no eternal benefit if he was never united to Christ by faith. And so we're clear, from from my point of view right now, looking out at you, every one of you is associated with Christ in some way. Just the fact that you're here associates you with Jesus Christ by proximity, we'll say. Whether or not you've been baptized, whether or not you've made a significant public profession of faith, you are in some sense outwardly marked, at least within these four walls, as associated with Christ. You've tasted the heavenly gifts and that you've been regularly washed by the preaching of the word from the pulpit or from in this room here. Maybe you've partaken of the Lord's Supper. Maybe you have been baptized. You've received some kinds of benefits, at least outwardly, of being part of the family of faith. 
All of you have that, at least that. But is that all? Is that all that you have? For believers, I'm not trying to frighten you today. My desire for you is the same as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews 6.11 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. So for for the believers in here, I'm not trying to frighten you or cause you to question your salvation. I I want to stay far away from that. If what I'm saying makes you a little bit nervous, the solution for you is simple, and that's to look to Christ. What do you believe about him? And that should give you comfort, and that should give you assurance. But if you're just putting on a show for people, like you've tricked us, like Judas tricked the disciples, you're just here for the benefits, the the friendships, the fun activities and trips, whatever it is. You like the idea of being associated with Christ in some way, but you've not actually placed your faith in him as your mediator with God the Father. Frankly, eternally speaking, you're kind of wasting your time here. You can find this at all kinds of other clubs that doesn't require as much from you. Being associated with Christ by proximity is ultimately going to be of no benefit to you either. I hope you keep coming. You're going to keep hearing the gospel every time that we talk because the gospel is for the believer and the unbeliever alike. But if you never move from your simple proximity to Christ to being united with him by faith, you will ultimately perish in your sins. And again, that's not to scare you either, unbeliever. I'm just giving you factual information. So to you, any of you that are in here in that state, I would plead with you to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. I'm not saying get your act together, start acting right, do better. I'm telling you to believe something. The gospel isn't go and do. The gospel is believe in and trust in what has been done by Jesus Christ and believe that that's been done for you. Back to the the believers, which I hope is most, if not all of you. The lesson for you also isn't go home, grab your most expensive thing, and then bring it and give it to us at the church. Right? That, that's not exactly the, the example that Mary is giving us. The, the extravagance of Mary's gift to Jesus says a lot more about what she thinks of Jesus than it does about the value of the thing that she gave up. I think Judas and Mary give us the extremes of both sides here. Most people that are faking it with Christianity, they're not going to have a huge Judas moment, right, where they betray somebody in the, in the church to the point that they get crucified on a cross. That's a rarity. I would say. Um, You don't see a lot of that. Some people do leave the faith loudly. You may hear those things, but most probably just drift away over time from the church, uh, or they may even die still putting on the show. But then also, most believers aren't Mary either, giving something to Christ or his church that is worth a year's salary, and nor are you called to, to do that. But in this true story that we've read here, we get a clear picture of the difference of what Christ means to different kinds of people. To one that likes Jesus because of the perks, he's worth whatever can be gained materially or socially from knowing him, and when that kind of cash cow runs out of milk, they'll drop Jesus like a bad habit. But to one who is with Jesus because he or she believes that Jesus is or was God in the flesh, the God-man who has met all of those righteous demands of the law Perfectly, and then offers his righteousness to rebel sinners like us to be received by nothing more than faith, he's worth everything. Being united to Christ is worth more to us ultimately than any material possession that we would have or any other source of joy. And not that that means that we're required to trade our stuff to receive that gift because then it's no longer a gift. But if we ever 
had to make the impossible choice between keeping our stuff and choosing Jesus, we of course would choose him. So yeah, we can look to Mary as an example, but not because of who she is in and of herself necessarily, but because of who she believed that Jesus is. Mary gave what she could because of love. So anything that we give of ourselves, of our stuff, of whatever, we should give because of love. And we love because of who Jesus is, not because of what he can get us. So Mary did do a beautiful thing for Jesus. She didn't do it out of obligation or duty. She did it out of love, the love of who he was to her. So it is very important to remember who Jesus is to you. I can't tell you that. I don't know who Jesus is to you specifically because I don't, I don't know you. If he's a meal ticket or if he's your savior. So when you leave today, there's a couple of application questions on there. I want you to really meditate on that thought. Who is Jesus Christ to me, to you? And I pray that your answer is one that leaves you by the time you've gotten home fully assured of your future and eternity with him. For some of you, your answer might cause you to realize your need to repent and put your faith in him, and that would be glorious too. And if that's the conclusion that you come to, please talk to Pastor Scott, talk to your parents, talk to any of the elders. Uh, We don't have any magic potion to, to help you there, but we can help you navigate what that means to place your faith in Jesus Christ, and we would love to do that. Option three, of course, is to harden your heart and remain in your Unbelief, But I pray that that would not be the case for you. And I pray that if that's what you're feeling, your parents still faithfully bring you here so you can hear the good news of the gospel and place your faith in Jesus Christ. So that's our passage for today. Not nearly as uh, mind-bending as the, as the Mark 13 stuff, but still very significant and heavy things to, to ponder on. Are there any questions or concerns or comments about any part of what we covered today? Do you guys ever have questions, concerns, or comments? Okay. All right, if no, thank you again for having me here. I know you didn't have a choice, but I appreciate being here and being able to to talk with you. If any of you do have questions later that you'd prefer not to do in a big group, please find somebody, um, find an elder, find a, a, a trusted friend, and we'd be happy to talk with you. So I'll pray, and then we'll continue with our Lord's Day. Well, Lord, we... We're so grateful that we get to see accounts like this in your, in your scriptures. We see in Mark such a stark contrast between how different people respond to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that um, we would be like Mary, not because of who Mary is, but because we recognize the same thing that she recognized, and that is the worth of Jesus Christ We need you to cause that in us, and if we start to forget what Jesus means to us because we get distracted by the things of earth, pray that your Spirit would work in us to turn us back to him. When we question where we stand with you, we feel beaten down by our persistence in certain sins. You would again turn us not to navel-gaze and feel as though we're unworthy. We know that we are in and of ourselves, but please point us back to Jesus Christ and what he what he accomplished on earth, what he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. Father, I pray that we would know that that is for our salvation, that is for our good, and it brings you glory. Thank you for these students. Thank you for their desire to sit under the preaching of your word. Pray that they would come to know you more and more, that you would strengthen all of our faith, and we can rest in that because of how faithful you are, even when we are often faithless. 
We thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.